everybody to another episode of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. I'm your host, Chris Yanes, joined alongside my co-host, Neil Shulman. And tonight we have an awesome guest, Allie Peak Wilbur. She is joining us here to preview the upcoming season for the Florida Gators. And I'm sure we'll probably get into a little bit of talk about the recent documentary that just dropped today. So happy Netflix drop day for the Florida Gators. Uh, yeah. But Allie, welcome on the show. Thanks for for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. This is super fun. I'm excited. Yeah, and I know we're all pretty excited to finally actually have a season. We are, what, nine days away now from kicking it off against Utah. So the excitement, I think, is finally starting to set in. Mm -hmm. Uh, But before we get all to that, we love to do a lightning round with our guests to kind of get to know them. So four quick questions here. Uh, We'll start off with, first, your favorite Gator moment. Uh, to watch. So this could be in person, this could be not in person, whatever it may be. I'm sure you have a grid library of of uh, memories, but would love to hear your favorite. Yeah, I mean, goodness, there's so many of them. Probably watching my husband and my brother win national championships uh, are two moments that are core memories for me. And then uh, Jarvis Moss blocking um, the, the extra point against South Carolina, the field goal against South Carolina, excuse me, um, was a huge one. He was Eric's roommate at the time. And so that was a really neat moment uh, for me. He let my seven-year-old brother smoke a cigar after that game to celebrate. Um, it. <laughs> um, that, there's a lot of really good memories. So those are probably three that stand out. That's awesome. So would you say that the block kick in the swamp was maybe probably your favorite memory that you can think of? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously them winning championships is huge. Um, Eric with the, the punt in the SEC championship game against Arkansas, where Wandy Pierre-Louis recovers it in the end zone, like that was huge. There's kind of a, you know, there was a fake punt that happened, um, you know, right before that, which there's kind of a story there because Eric told Meyer, like, do you have any balls? If you do, you'll call a fake here. And then that, he, so we called a fake because that he was challenged there. So I, I trivia. I'll be impressed if you get this. Do you remember the Arkansas punt returner's name who fumbled? Reggie up? Fish. Yes. Very nice. <laughs> I can tell you because Eric played in the CFL on the same team as Reggie Fish a few years um, later. Wow. Um, but yes, Reggie Fish. He was like five inches shorter than me. Um, and he broke the cardinal rule that you do not pedal backward Don't from the 10-yard line. Never go backwards. Especially uh, not when your heels are inside the 10-yard line. Definitely. So, and certainly not when you were looking at the gunners that they, would look, that they were looking at. So, Yeah, there was a ton of speed on that team. And I do remember that moment when the fake was called because that game was interesting. Like We had all the momentum in the first half. I think we got up like 17-0 on them. And you just felt like, okay, this was our night. We had a lot of close calls in 2006, a lot of close games. But that one, the first half, you thought, okay, we're going to cruise to an SEC championship. And then it just felt like we lost it all. that easy for Florida. Yeah, not that team. Not that. I mean, you know, I just think the way that Florida has won national championships in 96, in 2006, in 2008, it always required a little bit of magic. We are just not the program that gets the easy 12 and 0 and, and walks into it. We're not like we, 
there, if there's always a scrappiness to the team, there's always a little bit of magic that 2006 team had it. Um, I can remember being in the stadium and that was before Twitter was a thing. Face, Facebook was just college students. So you didn't have as much information right at your hands on your phone, but it went up on the jumbotron that UCLA had beaten USC. And so you're watching that like in real time, essentially like kind of make its way around the stadium. And then you're watching the players on the field getting the information too, and like tapping each other on the shoulders and looking and you like, I can remember what that felt like. We knew, okay, if we can figure out a way to close this out, we have a good chance of going to the national championship game. And that like, I mean, I can remember that like it was yesterday. Yeah. Do you think that the, when it started trickling down it, from the stands to the players that might've got in their psyche a little bit, and that's when the game kind of like turned a little bit in Arkansas's favor. Meyer turned it on at halftime in the locker room, which is definitely not something that he would normally do, but he wanted them to know that, that they were playing for all the marbles, essentially. Like if they could finish there, they were going to have a great chance to play in the national championship game. And then, you know, Urban is such a politician. He did such a great job petitioning for why Florida should be there. And Lloyd Carr probably made maybe the biggest mistake of his coaching career, refusing to say why Michigan belonged. Um, And, and I don't know how much, the BCS took, you know, how much that was taken into consideration or not or whatever, but urban went to bat for them. And, you know, obviously we saw the results. Yeah, no doubt. And that started the the string of SEC teams that won a national championship. And ever since 2006, the majority of teams that have won a title outside of the state of Ohio have been from the South. So it was a pretty big turning point for college football that night. Yeah, I mean, it is the the SEC dominance that we see now started with that team, which is, you know, pretty cool. I, I always remind Eric, like you like you guys did this. You started this this. And it really urban revolutionized the conference that year. Um, I think that, you know, nobody knew what to do with the spread. Right. And we've seen this time and time again in not only the SEC, but college football in general. Spurrier did it at Florida with the fun and gun. He was, you know, coming into a conference where it was a run first, very vanilla, strong defense you know, type of, of football being played. And so he revolutionized it. And then I think eventually everybody adapted. And when Meyer came, the spread happened and we've since changed, you know, uh, now from where we are now, but he changed college football that year. Yeah, no doubt. And hopefully we'll be changing college football once again under the Billy Napier era, uh, which we'll get into a little bit later in the show, but Thank you for that, Allie. Now let's switch gears a little bit. Next question is what is your favorite uniform combo? And this is turned into a little bit of a controversial question for the fan base. Like everybody, you have your traditionalists out there like myself, you have the fans out there like Neil that really love the alternates. Where do you stand on that debate? I'm not a fan of the alternates. Um, I am, you know, if Alabama wouldn't do it, I don't want to do it kind of thing. I like the, I, I like the traditional uniforms. I, I, you know, I'm a blues girl. Give me a blue Jersey, white pants. I'm, you know, I'm happy, but I see the value in the alternate jerseys. It's a huge recruiting thing. 18 year old kids want to wear some really cool thing that uh Jumpman or Nike or whatever came up with. And so from that aspect, like um, if that's going to be the difference in us landing a kid, then wear all black. I don't care. Wear army green and look like you crawled through the mud. I, whatever. I'm fine with it. I just, in general, am not a huge fan of gimmicky stuff. Agreed. What are your thoughts on the all black now that we've officially released that for the Arkansas game later this season? So I love um, 
I love the the purpose for why we're doing it. I think that's really neat. I, you know, we don't play that well in our alternate uniforms a lot of the time. So that kind of bothers me. An interesting thing that people don't know is that Dan Mullen pushed for black uniforms for three years and was turned down by our administration every single time. So I would love to know what it was that, that Napier finally said that like flipped the switch. And I wonder if it was the charity aspect. I wonder, like, I would love to know, but listen, it's the sign of the times. It's where we are. We have black for every other sport too. So why would we not let football have an opportunity to do it. Napier is definitely better at the, at the whole concept of soft power than Dan. I think so. But I also think our administration, it it, it kind of has revolutionized a little bit too. Like, I think that they finally got it. I think for a very long time, there was just this, you know, thought process that we are the university of Florida. We do not need to bend to these trends in college football, whether it be black uniforms or, you know, the NIL stuff or, you know, the best facilities, because we are a top 10 university and obviously now a top five university. We have, you know, we're in the state of Florida. We have this, we have that, that should sell itself. And I think that it took a very long time for the administration to wrap their heads around why that's not really where the sport is right now. All of those things can be true, but kids still won't pick you because of them. Yeah, we went into that in our last pod, didn't we, Chris? <laughs> we did. And I think, you know, what Allie's really touching on is like the fact that the administration, I think, finally had a wake up call after firing three consecutive head coaches since the Urban Meyer era. We're very far removed from that now. Well, we're getting to the point where the guys coming out of high school don't really remember that era. They have to watch a Netflix documentary to actually see what that time was all about. And Florida, like we said, revolutionized the game of college football in two different decades. And in a span of what, 10, 12 years, we won three national championships and that set the standard, but it, you have to continue to raise the bar within your program. Otherwise you're going to have an Alabama or a Georgia or a Clemson, Ohio state come up and knock you off your pedestal. Yeah. And I think you have to be willing to adapt. This game has changed so much, whether or not we like it or not. And there are parts of it that the traditionalist in me hates that have changed, but the reality is it's where we are. And the, you know, the, the saying change or die is essentially the truth in college football. And I think maybe the only person that hasn't had to change at the same breakneck speed is Nick Saban. And it's essentially because he's earned that right. Um, and because he was ahead of the curve on some things, if you look at Alabama's facilities, they've been the best for a really long time. So they were never playing catch up. And I think that we now we're caught up right now, but we've been playing catch up, unfortunately. And a lot of that has to do with our own choices, you know, over the past two decades. Well, we've had to do things. The, I think as as Chris calls it, the, or maybe, maybe it was me. One of us, I remember in the last pod called it the, the F around and find out method. With mm-hmm. something like Jaden Rashada, yeah. we had to learn it the hard way. It would have yeah. been cool if we didn't learn a right. lesson by losing a player like that. We could have just figured out, like, hey, yeah. maybe if we do this, something not ideal is going to result from it. Let's maybe not do this thing. No, we had to learn it the way of yeah. F around and find out. So, regardless, though, I do think Florida now, as you touched on, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about more on this on this episode, is that Florida is in a position now where I think you're going to see things 
be maybe a little bit more even than they were last mm-hmm. year. There was a massive disparity in so many different parts of the field and even the game off the field between the Florida Gators and other schools they were competing against. I don't yeah. think that maybe you can say that, that that gap is completely evened now, but it's headed that way. And that's yeah. the theme I think we can look forward to seeing play out this year. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think that there's so much more balance in a lot of different aspects on the field, but offer also off of it as well. And I we're not. I think we're coming from a position of strength now. And I think it took kind of a meeting of the minds from multiple levels. But we had to get the right head coach. We had to have an administration willing to make concessions for that head coach to be able to be successful. Like there just there was a lot of pieces to the puzzle. NIL had to. Uh, you know, be completely restructured. I, but I think that the train has left the station. It's headed in the right direction. I hope Gator fans are willing to give Billy Napier the time that he needs for a complete overhaul to be successful. um, Because I really do think that it's possible for us. Most definitely. So kind of on that note, talking about Billy Napier, shifting gears to the 2022 season, you know, we talked about it uh, last week on our, on our show kind of evaluating where Billy Napier is going into year two, what grade would you assign Billy Napier one year in and what it may be something that he's re- done really well. And then what's something he needs to improve on. Okay. So hmm, let's see. I think I'd probably give him a B overall. Um, I think he has recruited lights out. I would give him an A plus in recruiting. And I think that he's doing it from such a genuine place. And I think that's going to pay dividends because regardless of how this season turns out, I think this class holds, which means no matter what the record is, I still think we will have taken a step forward. Even if on paper, people are like, ah, seven and five or whatever. Was that that big of a step? If this class holds, yes, that is that big of a step. We have the the second hardest strength of schedule in the conference, in the country. And we will have, you know, somewhere between the third and fifth best recruiting class when it's when it all shakes out. Um, I think, and I think a lot of the things that I think about Billy Napier all come from the same place. I think he's genuine. And I think that that um, is such a huge character trait quality that you need in your head coach. We were in Gainesville on Friday. Um, They did like a former player um, lunch. And then they had a scrimmage that was open to players and Billy Napier spoke for a few minutes and I've listened to, I've been alive for eight Florida coaches. I don't really remember Galen Hall. I was very little. So we'll start with Spurrier and and on. I don't know that I've ever listened to a coach speak so genuinely to a room of players and and their families before. I mean, he challenged them to show up. Don't call. Don't write. Come. This is your home. You're allowed to be here anytime you want, wherever you want whenever you want with no notice, you're always welcome. We want you. And that is such a different feel than we've gotten depending on the coach over the last couple of decades. There's a lot of times where it's like, here, jump through these three hoops, spin around, and then make sure your name tags available at all times, you know, and this just felt so different. So I think he's earned the alumni support and, you know, the player support. I think he's a genuine coach to his actual players And I think he's recruiting really well. So the last piece of that puzzle in my mind is going to be the on the field play. And I think um, for me, I'm really interested to watch offensive play calling. I feel like there was some head scratchers last year. I find it an interesting choice to have, you know, three pieces of Billy Napier's army that'll hold your coffee, but you're going to call the plays and you're going to handle special teams. And you're going to also work with the quarterbacks. That seems 
a little bit unbalanced to me, but maybe it's going to work, but that's going to be an area that like, I'm interested to see if there's improvement on how self-reflective is Billy Napier. Is he able to look at film from last year and be like, man, I didn't do a great job in this game on this play or this let's come up with a way to do it better the next time. Um, And then I'm interested to see what, what, Changes have happened on defense. I think we're faster. I know we're bigger. Um, I know we've got guys that are bought in, but the defense has to improve from where it was last year, or we're going to end up with a similar record. Um, so those are the areas that I'm watching, but I would say probably a B overall. And that's mainly because the on the field play has to improve. Yeah. And I think you touched on a lot of points that Neil said that he felt that he deserves an A plus in recruiting, but the on field probably is around a C. And that's where I think Neil and I both land. I think Neil had him at a B, B plus. I had him at a B plus. But yeah, I would agree. Like the on field results ultimately have to show you can be the nicest guy in the world, but it doesn't matter if it's a wins and loss game. And if the wins don't eventually come, then people start asking questions and accountability has to be had. Yeah. And I think he's in a not awesome position because we do have such a difficult schedule this year. And then next year when divisions are gone and it is insanely, you know, uh, competitive, he's going to be in a position where, I mean, and, and best case scenario is Mertz is serviceable or better than serviceable this year. And he can start again next year because it would be really difficult for a year three Billy Napier to have to start DJ Lagway week one against that schedule. That is in a do or die year for Napier, potentially. Um, so if that scenario could be avoided for Napier, I would love that. Um, but I think people got have to be patient. I think this year, as long as Florida gets six wins or better, I think it's an improvement. The schedule is hard. It, we are in the middle of a rebuild. After that, we play the hardest uh, schedule in the entire country. So I think you've got to give him four years. And I think that that's unless the wheels completely fall off and he's, you know, riding down university on a moped with a co-ed on his back or something like you've you've got to give him at least those four years um, to see if he can figure it out. Well, that didn't stop Hugh Freeze from coaching in the oh. SEC, but. <laughs> I mean, that's one one of the things you just said is something that I, I mean, I gotta I gotta push back on a little bit because I hear everyone say the same thing. That 2024 schedule is brutal. Well, yeah, but isn't it for everyone? Like you're in the SEC. Yes. I don't see Alabama. I don't see a Hugh Freeze coached Auburn there. I don't see Oklahoma, who, yes, I know they're not what they were with Lincoln Riley, but that's still a premier program. LSU's at home. I mean, it Texas AM was gonna be one of the more talented teams you face at home. It could have been so much worse than it was. Yeah, I mean, it could have. I the when I say the hardest strength of schedule, I'm referencing articles that I've seen that literally rank it as the hardest schedule in the country for next year. But you're right. It it everybody has a hard schedule in the SEC. It just is a very inopportune moment for it to be year three and have you know all all eyes on you because that's usually what Florida has done is this three year you know kind of. Uh, look, look back. Uh, and, but you're right. You know, that everybody is going to play a tough schedule and Florida has always played a tough schedule. And part of why it looks so tough is because Florida hasn't taken care of business the last several years, a schedule, uh, you know, and this year is the same way we're looking at it saying like, Oh man, Kentucky's beaten us before we beat South Carolina last time, but South Carolina is on the rise. We're looking at Tennessee, the Florida that we know, 
none of those should be a problem. The Florida that we know should look at this year's schedule and be like, all right, well, we for sure see 10 wins and then we're going to be battling with Georgia and we're going to be battling with LSU. But you know, if we go one and one on those, you know, we'll be happy, but it's because we've dropped the ball the last few years that these schedules do feel so daunting. Yeah, Neil, and we've, we've talked about it at nauseum. We cannot become the elite of the SEC again until we start taking care of the teams we beat year in and year out. You like have to the win team. the games you're supposed to. It's the yep. Greg it's the Greg McElroy quote. And it, it, you know what? He he used it for Dan Mullen, but I, I think it was in 2018 or pre-2018, but it's applicable now. You at Florida, don't, don't worry about Alabama. Don't worry about LSU. Don't worry about Georgia. Don't worry about FSU, who at that time had beaten us five years in a row. You worry about Kentucky, who's given you struggles left and right. They hadn't beaten us at that point, but 17, they should have beaten us. 15, 14, they probably should have beaten us. Worry yeah. about Kentucky. You worry about Vandy, who not that long ago beat you. Uh, it was, I think, four years prior at that point. You worry about a team like South Carolina, who had just beaten Florida the year before. So Florida can't worry about Georgia. It's just as true now because Georgia, yes, the gap is closing a little bit, but you can't worry about teams four or five rungs ahead of you when you are struggling to beat these teams that are supposedly inferior to you. And Chris, I mean, we'll talk about that soon, but I mean, we have a lot of those on our schedule this year. We do. It's not that unfathomable to think that Florida could run off a bunch of wins to start the year. It's not that insane to think that. Well, it's, there's so many coin flip games. And last year there was a lot of coin flip games too. And there's some that we, we could have won. We look back, but we also won a couple. We could have lost Utah was a coin flip game. Honestly, USF was a coin flip game there are for, for all the coin flip games we lost last year, the season honestly could have been even worse because we did win some, but you've got to win all the coin flip games or most of the coin flip games. And you've got to win the games that you're supposed to win. You are supposed to beat Kentucky. I saw a stat this week. I think Kentucky has beaten Florida in Gainesville twice in the last 51 attempts. I got to double check the. Cause and I saw- I've been at both of them. I was in the swamp for both of them and have not seen them beat Kentucky yet. That's just um, astonishing to me. <laughs> I, I mean, it's there's, but Kentucky has our number right now. Vanderbilt, Florida consistently plays down to Vanderbilt. Missouri has given Florida fits over the past, you know, 10 years. There's just, Florida has got to take care of the teams that we say we're better than recruiting stats say we're better than records overall say we're better than, but for some reason, when we kick off, we play to where they are. And that is the first problem to fix. You're right. Before we worry about what Georgia is doing or LSU is doing, or even Florida state is doing. I'm very glad you you brought up that that line of of teams we should beat and coin flips. Put a pen in that because Chris, we're gonna finish the show with that. You're you're gonna you're gonna hear that line again. That's that's very very impressive that you're able to read my mind like that. <laughs> yep. So okay, so we we look at Napier, we look at where this team's headed. Let's now break down the position groups. There's been, and we'll start with the quarterback because I think that probably at the you know when. Back in December, when we realized Anthony Richardson was not going to be returning, he went on to the NFL, and this week was named the starting quarterback of the Colts, so obviously he made a good move on his part, but that left a void to fill. And then in comes Graham Mertz, who I think for many months was very controversial in the take. I think a lot of fans wish we would have gone a different direction there in the transfer portal. Obviously, we wish that we maybe even had Jaden Rashada, but none of that came to fruition. Graham Mertz is our starting quarterback, but he's played very well in fall camp and the scrimmages 
And the team really seems to be rallying around him as their leader. So what do you think of the quarterback position going into this season and kind of just evaluate that situation as a whole? So first of all, there was not a ton of talent in the transfer portal. So when Florida had to go in there and and get one, there's not a whole lot of of options to choose from, right? So, and Grand Mertz has started the most number of games of anybody that was in there. So obviously Napier has said ad nauseum that that's one of the things that he took into consideration. But I, I just don't think we need him to be awesome. I think we need him to be a game manager. I think we need him to not make mistakes. I think that there is enough talent, particularly obviously in the running backs room, but I think the offensive line is good enough. There is enough young wide receiver talent that Florida can put together an efficient offense. Now, I don't think they're getting into, uh, you know, gunslinging battles with, with teams and coming out victorious, right? But I think that if they can get an efficient offense that eats the clock and relies heavily on the running game that they don't need him to be a superstar. They need him to manage the game. And I think back, you mentioned Greg McElroy. I think about Greg McElroy. Now, obviously this is not me saying Florida is going to be the 2009 Alabama team, but Greg McElroy is not a great quarterback. He was a great game manager. He played mistake-free football and he had a lot of talent around him. And if Florida could just have something similar to that, I think that they could be really successful. So I'm honestly not as concerned about the quarterback position as I think other people maybe are. Well, and I think, and we'll get to the running back position in a second, but we probably have two of the best running backs in the entire conference, if not the country. I don't think they're getting enough love nationally, uh, ETN and Johnson, because those guys this year, one of them could conceivably have a thousand yards rushing so long as the offensive line stays healthy. I think that's really one of the big keys with the quarterback position this year is if the offensive line stays healthy, because if you look at his statistics at Wisconsin, he threw 26 interceptions, but he yeah. was sacked 47 times. And yeah. when a quarterback is under duress, the amount he was, and he doesn't have the talent level that he's going to be now playing with here at the university of Florida, that's right. when mistakes can happen, especially against bigger opponents. So I right. think that's really the key is the guys around him have to remain healthy and he yeah. needs that solid offensive line play to protect him in those short intermediate routes where he excels at and yeah. then let those running backs just thrive in this offense. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Florida has top three running back room in the conference probably means that it's top three nationally. Right. And, and you do have to rely on it. I, um, talk to Shannon Snell a lot and he's out to practice on a regular basis. And he is always like, this offensive line is deeper than it was last year. You know, it may not be, they may not have the individual superstar, but this, this team is deep. Now we have had a couple of injuries. We had, you know, a player have to leave because of, of family issues. And so when those things happen, obviously that changes things, but I think the offensive line has the ability to be a a position of strength for Florida. And if they are, then that means the running back room can really shine um, to the best of its ability. And they are so, so talented. And, uh, you know, it stinks what happened to Cam Carroll. I was expecting um, some good things out of him this season. And I'm really sad that he is injured. But this also now opens the door for Trayon Webb to have an opportunity to maybe see the field a little bit and developing the future uh, is not a bad thing either. 
Well, and Billy Napier showed last year he's not afraid to play freshman. I mean, I remember we on this podcast said that we thought ETN was going to have to wait his turn. And ETN played in the first game of the season and played a big part in that victory over Utah. So I I would anticipate this year that to not be any different. I think a lot of freshmen are going to play and a lot of transfers are going to play. Yeah, that wasn't we. That was me. I'll I'll eat that. I'll, I wasn't going to call that. you out, but you just I'll called take yourself it. out. No, I'll I'll take it. I'll, I'll I'll because in fairness, I I still had PTSD from the way Mullen did things. I'd forgotten that Mullen was very much not a part of that game anymore. But no, that 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 was me. I'll I'll accept that L. <laughs> hey, that's a that's a good one to take, right? Like that's an okay thing to be wrong about. I thought Naquan was primed for a big year, and Lorenzo Lingard, but yeah. I thought Lorenzo Lingard was going to have a big year too. And I really liked him as a person. So I was hoping, yeah. I think that he would have a good year, but I mean, Florida's running backs room were, you know, really one of the lone bright spots of the season last year for me. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So really quick before we move on to quarterback, I think we just kind of covered running back pretty well, but backups, is there a backup that you maybe like in this situation? I'm kind of, I've been a Matt, I'm on the Max Brown train a little bit. I think he, there's a lot of upside for him. Yeah. It potentially being the backup eventually. I know Jack Miller has been out with a couple of injuries, uh, tendonitis in the shoulder, I believe, right now. But what do you assess behind uh, Grammar's? Yeah, I think Max Brown is is the guy behind him. Uh, when I was there on Friday, Miller was in the pit, so he wasn't even practicing at all. Um, he was out, and Max Brown looked looked good. I mean, he looked decent. He was going against the ones that the scrimmage that we watched. They had ones versus twos, so we never actually were looking at strength on strength. Um, so that's a little bit harder to evaluate what you're looking at. So he was going against all of the ones on defense, but he held his own, and I think that and he's throwing to you know, your second string guys, um, as opposed to your first string and they still had a decent day. So I I think that he has the ability to be serviceable. I don't want to get in a situation where Mertz goes down because I, I, who knows what it is that we're going to see. I think Max Brown is such an unknown commodity at this point, even more so than Mertz is for us. Um, it's not a deep room. It's just not. And so, uh, you know, I, I, it wouldn't shock me if they took somebody in the portal next year, not, not because they basically because they need the depth essentially. Well, and you never know. Graham Mertz still has a year of eligibility. So best case scenario, let's say he has a good season, not let's ready for the league he comes back and we lagway can actually sit a year to prepare for hopefully maybe 2025. So he's not thrown in the gauntlet. Yeah. I mean, him being able to sit the whole year would be amazing. Or even think about like what happened to Chris Leak, where he like kind of slowly came along. I think he became the starter by like the Kentucky game of 2020 or uh, 2003. Both of those scenarios are a better scenario for Lagway than starting week one, an SEC schedule like we have as a, as an 18 year old freshman. So if we can avoid that situation, I think that that would be way better for Lagway's long-term development. Definitely. All right, so we've got quarterback, running back. Let's move to receivers. And I think this is a room where obviously Ricky Pearsall is primed, as Billy Napier said, for a big season. But behind him, there's a lot of unproven players. And this isn't to say that that room won't be successful this year or won't be strength. I think there's a lot of talent in the freshman room. But kind of give your thoughts on where the receiver room is at right now and who are maybe some guys behind Ricky Pearsall that could emerge. Um, so I think that, um, you know, behind Ricky Pearsall in the slot, probably Trey Wilson is somebody that we will see some productivity out of, um, 
you know, I think Caleb Douglas and, and Marcus Burke will probably start alongside Pearsall, but I'm interested to see what Andy Jean can do. I think that, uh, you know, he is such an incredible ta- talent, Aiden Mizell. Um, Khalil Jackson just got scholarship this summer. He is, I have a special place in my heart for him because his family is the third, third generation um, family. And I'm, I'm part of the second. And, you know, I'm interested to see him, but there is a lot of talent. It's just all unproven and all really young for the most part. Yeah. I mean, Florida, Florida kind of got the, a, a treasure trove in in the wide receiver class last year with those, those three freshmen with, with Mizell, Eugene Wilson, who you mentioned uh, goes by Trey Wilson. Mm-hmm. Andy Jean's the one that, that has me, has, yeah. has me excited. That I mean, all all of them do. I mean, Eugene Wilson, the the elusiveness, and Mizell, the the speed and length. But Andy Jean feels like he could be the wild card of this unit. And Ali, I want to ask you about him in a second. But first, before we talk more about Andy Jean, gotta shout out our merch store. That's right. We've got new merch that is for sale on an allkindsofweather.com slash merch that is comfortable, lightweight for those hot summer days and makes it very clear to everybody you come across which team you pull for. From 100% polyester workout tees, soft style cotton tees, sport tech polos, quarter zips, hoodies, beanies, baseball caps, trucker hats, koozies, tumblers, pint glasses, and more. We've got just the gear you're looking for this football season. Our gear is sold in four colors, orange, blue, black, and white, and it all features that sleek new alligator logo that pays homage to all your favorite moments in Florida Gator history. So don't wait. Get yours today so you can have it for our home opener against McNeese. Go to inallkindsofweather.com slash merch to get yours now. That's inallkindsofweather.com slash merch. So with that taken care of, um, Allie, as I mentioned a second ago, Andy Jean is is the one that intrigues me the most. From what you've heard, I mean, obviously you're very well connected. You hear a lot. You see a lot yourself. Which of those three rookie receivers for the Florida Gators do you think is is most likely to have a breakout season? That's a great question because I feel like everybody I talk to has a different answer, but they all mention Wilson, Mizell, and Jean. So, you know, I think Wilson will play a little bit behind Pearsall. So maybe that's, maybe that's a negative for him because Ricky Pearsall is going to be wide receiver one, and he's going to get a lot of the action there. Um, Out of the wide receivers that are starting Burke is probably the one that I see that could be overtaken the most. So maybe that favors Andy Jean or Aiden Mizell more, but I've honestly heard such good things about all three of them. And I do think at the end of the year, our starting wide receiver lineup maybe looks different than it does on day one. I totally agree with that. I mean, I think Pearsall and Caleb Douglas are your, your two guys for sure that are probably locked in, mm-hmm. but behind that, I, I do see a freshman overtaking potentially Jacoby on Frazier's if he does not live up to what yeah. he needs to do in order to keep his position as the starter at this present time. Because I think a lot of projections show him as the starter right now, as yeah. that third receiver. But, I mean, there are guys clearly nipping at his heels, and Andy Jean, Trey Wilson, and Ada Mizell all made big plays yeah. in fall camp. And that's something I wanted to point out, too. I'm higher on Caleb Douglas than a lot of Gator fans seem to be. His name seems to be kind of forgotten about when people are talking about Florida receivers. Yeah, there's there's some hype from Marcus Burke, especially from the Jacksonville area Gators. Obviously, they're going to hype their local kid up. Ricky Pearsall is um, the obvious one. 
Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, Ricky Pierce, all the obvious one. And then there's that, 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 that trio of freshman wide receivers, Caleb Douglas. I mean, I was right. I, I was high up, but I was in that corner of the end zone in Aggieland where he made that touchdown catch where he just boxed out his defender and makes a great catch. And I, I, I see that. And I'm, I'm like that, that's an NFL type play, like to go up and and like box out your guy and get the rebound like that. That's a real big league play he just made. So what have you been hearing about him uh, maybe justifying that hype? He, he sort of ended the year with last year, carrying on into this year. Well, he had some great plays in the scrimmage on Friday. And he, um, first of all, he is faster than I realized, or at least looks faster in person than I, I think maybe was mentally giving him credit for, um, he's got long arms. He's got a lot of height. Um, but I would say he, he drew some of the largest like oohs and ahs from the crowd. And, and this, this scrimmage is, is different than when there's an open practice scrimmage, because these are people that are really difficult to impress, um, because they've all been there. Right. And so, uh, they, <laughs> I guess they have a higher, I don't want to say a higher standard. That sounds terrible, but like they just are harder to impress. And I think that a lot of people were talking about Caleb Douglas and what he was capable of. Um, so it kind of made me excited for him. I do. I think that he could have a big year and, and Florida needs that, right? They can't rely solely on Ricky Pearsall. Pearsall is good, but Pearsall is going to get double covered a lot. He's going to draw the attention of the best defenders of whoever Florida is playing. So that does allow some opportunity for some other guys, but people have to make plays when given that opportunity or Florida's offense is not going to be able to be multidimensional. Definitely. Well, we'll have to see. I think it's a position that has the highest upside maybe of any on the offense right now, but we've got to see those guys go out and prove it on the field when it comes time. Let's shift gears to tight end. I think this is a group that, at least in my opinion, has left a lot to be desired. Uh, Billy Napier does a lot of two tight end sets, mm-hmm. and this I, I'm kind of surprised that it hasn't taken off in his tenure yet, but mm-hmm. there's some young guys in this group that could definitely, I think, make some plays. Arlos Boardingham is certainly one yeah. that comes to mind, uh, who I think kind of has that those physical ability to go up and get the ball and also be very fast on the field. So what do you think though about this position group? Who do you think emerges uh, from it? Okay. So uh, Boardingham is one that I have, have had on my list as well. I think that he um, does have all of the physical attributes. I think he's a really good blocker. I think that he has really good hands. Um, I have been underwhelmed with how Napier used tight ends last year. And I don't know if that's because he didn't feel like he had a whole lot of talent there to use or what the, but Florida, Florida has done really well with tight ends. If you look over the past 20 years, like that is uh, Florida always has good tight ends and they always get good production out of them. They're not just blockers um, in, in these Florida offenses that have had any sort of success over the last two decades. So Florida is going to need production out of their wide receivers, not to, or excuse me, their tight ends, not just look at them as extensions of the offensive line. Like they are a potential real weapon. Um, Dante uh, Zanders is another person. Um, I'm interested to see Caleb Odom. And I'm part of that's just because, uh, you know, he's a legacy and I'm, I'm excited to see what he can do. I know he knows what it means to wear the logo on the chest. Um, so I personally want to see him do well, but I also have heard his name as being somebody that is, um, kind of showing out a little bit. 
Well, and he he's had to battle back from injuries. And and, and to be fair, this is a roommate that's experienced a lot of injuries. Unfortunately, Keon Zipper torn ACL off for this season. Uh, Jonathan Odom is coming back from an ACL injury late last year, still recovering on the uh, mend. I don't know why I said Caleb Odom. Sorry. Oh, it's with Caleb Odom. Yeah. Uh, another tight end prospect out there. But, you know, I think that it's, it's a, a room that has incurred a lot of injuries, yeah. but it hopefully it allows some of the younger guys to step up in that void. And we'll have to see. I mean, I think it, I, this is a room that needs to make a big jump. That we, you know, and and I guess basically we've got a lot of unknown commodities at yep. the moment. Um, but you're right; it is a room that needs to make a jump. And if Florida's offense is going to be able to put points on the board, they're going to have to get some sort of production out of out of their tight ends, particularly because it seems like Napier is going kind of away from the really big. May, I don't want to say slow, but maybe but slower wide receivers and is looking at uh, some of these, you know, really quick, small, smaller guys. So we need these tight ends because they are kind of a change of pace then from these new younger guys that that Napier is bringing in. Definitely. And I mean, I think a lot of our red zone was last year could be attributed to not having solid yeah. tight end play because that's typically a position you'd target in the red zone. We had that with Kyle Pitts. We've had that with tight ends in the past, like you talked about, like a, I think of a Ben Troop. Mm-hmm. way back in the day ah. it's a position that has to get better if we're going to see those that production increase where we actually have touchdowns and not just field goals yeah i mean florida has uh, think about the 2006 season the 2008 season the 2012 season i mean any time that florida has an actually productive offense they have good tight ends i was gonna say we've we've been burned as a fan base the last couple of years by hearing all the hype about different tight ends doing well in spring ball Summer yeah. ball comes, maybe you're starting to get, okay, you know, he's doing well, but then the focus is on other guys and then games start getting played and the, well, what happened? Where is he? I don't know. We heard all this about him in spring ball. Like we, we got to have that productive year out of a tight end this year. And I think Florida will have a better tight end play or a better they will have a better season out of their tight ends than they had last year for sure. I think the question is, as Chris alluded to, is how are they utilized this year? And I think part of that goes to play calling is something that we've also been talking about. But it's just in some fashion or another, that is a mismatch advantage that Florida has got to utilize this season. I think that in some ways we're going to have some answers about last season that come from this season. I think that sometimes we weren't sure, was it the play calling? Was it the the talent or lack thereof? Whose call was X, Y, Z at the end of the day? And I, I mean, I know even with Anthony Richardson, there were so many times where my personal question was, is, does he have the ability to call his own number? If he does, why isn't he calling it? Why does he still have control over calling it? If it's not him, why is the person whose job it is? Isn't, I mean, and I think we can, there's a lot of things we can look back and wonder. And so maybe those questions kind of get answered this year. And maybe it is, we didn't trust the personnel we had on the field, or we didn't, we didn't like the head to head matchup. We didn't, I mean, who knows, but I'm interested to see what jump is made from one to two offensively in a lot of different areas, because there are question marks. Most definitely. Well, let's jump to offensive line. I know you kind of touched on it originally with your conversations with Shannon Snell. I think it's safe to say we feel pretty good about that starting five that we've brought, we have, but beyond that, I think 
there is a little bit of a concern with at least if a guy goes down, how they reshuffle that offensive line. Because I think if, if an injury happens, depending on where it occurs, it probably means you move one guy to the opposite side of the line or to another position, and then you have to plug another guy in. So how do you feel, uh, let's say, three, four deep on that offensive line behind those starting five? I mean, I don't. I don't know that I think we have a four deep um, that I think that, that that might be wishful thinking at this point, but I think we have some talented players. We know, you know, we know who our starting guys are going to be, but I think about like Najee Harris is probably not going to be a starter, but he's going to be a really good piece to the puzzle. He's going to have the ability to give us fresh legs and I think contribute immediately. Um, I, I, you know, I think about Cameron Waits. This is somebody who, who, should be productive for Florida. Hudson is another person. Kearney. I mean, there are, there are bodies. I, I hope Florida stays injury free and I I'm glad we have, um, you know, the guys that we have that are starting, I think Barber is going to be huge for Florida. I think Micah Mazuka is somebody who could have a really good year at Guacan. Obviously we have talent. It's just whether or not this talent stays healthy, right guard and left guard are probably a little bit more concerning than tackle because I think, um, we're maybe a little bit thinner in those positions. So we're going to see which guys are versatile, which guys can be, can be moved over. Um, but overall, I, I think Florida fans are going to see, a strong offensive line this year. And and when I say a step forward, I think it's a step forward in the fact in the equality of talent. Once you get past that starting five. And an offensive line has been a strength for the Billy Napier teams in the past at university of Louisiana. That's why he has such a successful run game and, and with his offense, just because, you know, he, that, you know, he prioritizes the trenches and we've seen that also with defensive line, which we're just about to talk about, but offensive line is, is one of those key components to the success of his offense. Well, offensive line is such a, is unique to college football from a, a talent evaluation process. I, I think I always talk about this in recruiting because when you are taking high school kids, generally high school programs take just the largest bodies that they have, and they put them on offensive line. There's not usually a whole lot of development unless you really are at one of the better high school programs in your state. So then when you're a college team and you're trying to evaluate this, you are evaluating based on what you think you're going to be able to teach this guy once he gets to your program, not actually the technique that he currently possesses, which is kind of different than most positions on the field. So you strike out a lot of the time, essentially. And I think that Billy Napier has wrapped his head around both through the transfer transfer portal and recruiting that you have to oversign there. You have to prioritize having way more bodies than you actually think you might need because you it's a crapshoot. Well, I, I, one of one of my favorite quotes from from Will Muschamp this is partly because of his his accent, but his the, the line is it's a line of scrimmage league, like L I G is how you pronounce it. It's a line of scrimmage league, but it's true because it is. That's how the SEC functions. You have to be strong at the points of attack, both on offense and defense. Uh, we just talked about the offense. The defensive line to me is the X factor of the whole team. I'm I just gave away the, the end of the pod, but sorry, because it is, it's a critical importance to the Florida Gators this year, because, you know, it just wasn't that great. The last couple of years. Sure. There were moments. Princely did some good things here and there, but just by and large did not produce the way we would have liked it to. So there's, there's certainly talent there. There's a lot of new faces there. Cam Jackson, Caleb Banks, 
They signed a treasure trove of signees out of the high school ranks. There's five different freshmen who are going to be coming in expected to play at a high level fairly quickly, probably among them, Cam James, TJ Searcy, Will Norman. I mean, it, there's just a lot of different names you could pick and say, yeah, I think that guy's going to be the one. Yeah, I think that guy's going to be special. Oh, yeah, that guy's going to be the, the key for us. So what have you been hearing about the defensive line as a whole? And has there been a name that's come to your ears more than the rest that we should look out for? Okay, so I actually got a text message from um, an unnamed booster who was at practice. This is earlier in the week, last week. And he was like, I don't think our defensive line has been this deep since 2008, which is obviously such a massive statement. And I don't know that I'm prepared to in any way compare this defensive line to 2008, but I will tell you seeing them in person, I don't remember a time that Florida had a defensive line this size since the good years. Um, and I think that there is a lot of talent. Kelby Collins is somebody that we've heard, um, a lot about SAP, um, Cam, uh, Cam Jackson is, is somebody that I know a lot of people are really high on, but this is an incredibly deep line. And even like big Des, I know we made a huge deal about his weight and how much it was, um, over the summer, but I saw him in person. He looks, he is the leanest 400 pounds I have ever seen. If he really weighs 400 pounds. Um, and I think that this has been such a focus for Napier because he knows you win in the trenches. Look at Georgia and look at Alabama. The recipe for success in our conference already exists. You don't have to reinvent the wheel there. And it does start in the trenches. And our our, our offensive line got bullied last year by Georgia's defensive line. This is That was what eventually wore us down. We were able to hold our own for the first probably two and a half quarters on that aspect. And then that defensive line is so big and so deep. And I do, I, you know, you mentioned a lot of the big names. I expect a good, a good year out of uh, Princely. Jack Pyburn is another person that I think that a lot of people have talked a lot about, but there's, there's a lot of talent on the defensive line. Really quick before we move to the linebackers, you know, obviously we had the unfortunate injury of Justin Boone, but I think he mentioned a couple of names are just at the end of that statement where those guys could potentially step into his place and and really plug and play and and make a huge difference at that end position. So I think that the, the depth that Florida has is going to pay off with the loss of Boone and it stinks when somebody gets hurt, right? Like we hate it for these players. They bust their butt and then you get to where you're, you know, two weeks out from uh, getting to actually show the work that you've put in and you get hurt and it stinks. But the silver lining of that is there are opportunities for younger guys to step up and, and seize the moment. Right. And so I, you know, that does allow things like that to happen. And so we'll see, well, you know, we'll see mm -hmm. who steps up and fills the position, but the good news is Florida has options there, which I don't know that you could have said that last year. Yeah, it is. It is one of the the most unfortunate parts of sports seeing someone get hurt, especially so close to season. It's never good. It always sucks, whether it's April or August. But just this close to the season, after they they go through all that, all those yeah. four four forty five a.m. workouts or five a.m. workouts or whatever, and then and he was celebrating too. He was just celebrating a good yeah. Play. That's pulling a Ted Ginn Jr., but not in the national championship game, but. Um, so another position where we're going to have guys step in, this is a very different type of situation, but 
We are having a lot of new faces step in at linebacker, particularly because at least to me, it feels like there just isn't, you don't replace Ventral Miller with, with one guy. He, he was so intelligent. He brought so much to the defense. Yes, it was one position, but it just feels like it's going to take multiple guys to sort of fill the void that he is leaving. So same sort of question at linebacker. Um, have, has there been a name and I'm, I'm anticipating one that you're going to say in particular, but I'm, I'm going to let you say it and give you the moment. Uh, but has there been a name that stood out above the rest among the linebacking core? And what have you been hearing about the unit as a whole so far this summer? So I think the unit as a whole is the biggest is a is one of the biggest question marks for me. And I don't know that it's because there's a lack of talent. I think it's because we just haven't heard as much about them during fall camp. I feel like a lot of focus has been on the DBs. A lot of focus has been on the defensive line. And we just haven't heard as much about the linebackers. Shamar James is a name that I heard a lot at the scrimmage last Friday. Um, I think that Derek Wingo has the opportunity to really, you know, kind of make a name for himself. Scooby Williams is another person that I expect some, some big things out of. Um, but I don't, it, it is going to be a lot of new faces essentially. And you're right. Like, I don't know how you replace Miller. He was the, the quarterback of the defense for Florida. That's not, that's not a role that I can immediately look at our roster and be like, Oh, so-and-so fills this position. So we're fine. Um, I'm interested to see what happens in linebacker, honestly. Yeah. And I guess that was probably the strategy bringing in a veteran like Taraja Mitchell from Ohio state who in an established program played, you know, about the similar size, played them inside the linebacker position. Uh, and he potentially could fill that leadership void, but that's, it's still very difficult to do. I mean, it it is. Um, he's obviously made some waves this week by by talking about Urban Meyer encouraging him to come to Florida. Um, he wasn't somebody that stood out to me in the scrimmage, but that's not a knock on him. It was a million degrees. I had four children running around, and there and they had us in the stands, which kind of just doesn't necessarily lend you to be able to see what's going on in all parts of of the scrimmage and the and the drills that they had going on, but you would assume that's the hope, right? Is that they're hoping they can have some veteran leadership because this linebacking core needs veteran leadership. But I do think that, that the void left by Miller gives an opportunity for somebody who maybe we're not expecting to kind of take the reins. And part of it is going to be the vocal aspect of it. Generally you're, you have a linebacker who, who is a leader in the locker room, who hypes guys up on the side. Like when you think about these good teams, there is a defensive captain. And a lot of times it is a linebacker. Yeah, no, I mean, we'll have to see. It's a, it's a group that had definitely in years past, I think, hasn't been great, but when Florida's defense is elite, we've had a great linebacker room. Like you think back to those guys like Brandon Seiler, uh, Brandon Spikes, uh, even a guy like Ryan Stamper, uh, yeah. you know, like that, those guys were leaders on those 06 and 08 teams. Uh, and, and even during those years where we had Alex Anzalone, Jared Davis, those were great. That was a great linebacker group too. And we had an elite defense. And ever since those guys have left and we haven't been able to replace them. I mean, yep. there, and there's, Florida has had good linebackers. I mean, Florida's had good defense until the last, you know, four years. Florida has had elite defenses for as long as any of us have been alive. Um, uh, defense has never really been Florida's issue until very, very recently. Um, but you're right. I mean, even think about the, the 96 team and James Bates. I mean, Florida, when Florida is good, their linebackers are elite. Yep. The, the yeah. alphas of the team tend to be in that position. 
Yeah. The defense was good until four years ago. I, I wonder what variable might have changed around that time, Chris. I wonder, an alley. I wonder. I was never a fan of the Grantham hire. I hated Todd Grantham ever since we played. I don't know if you'll 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 remember this. Florida played Georgia, yes, and he did the choke to Chaz Henry, who is literally stepping up to kick a field goal, which is not his actual position. And it just it's one thing when fans do it. It's even one thing when you know, 18 to 22 year old kids do it to each other. But when you're watching an adult on the sidelines, do that to a kid, I could never look at Todd Grantham the same ever again and have never liked him since that moment. And I it mean, was you, such a gratifying moment when he nailed that. Oh my kick. God. It was and so in his face. Amazing. Oh God. That was Jazz is just so like, humble and soft-spoken and it's just like i mean eric would have like you know chomped him in the face on purpose like it, it, it just chat so it was so gratifying for chaz to be able to do that because it's just he's the salt of the earth kid and it was just so scummy yeah yep. well that's a theme that he likes to con- that he liked to continue on in simon gainesville but we're done with him we got a new uh defensive coordinator in um we're I think we're in better hands. I think we were in better hands with Patrick Tony. The, the numbers obviously didn't show it, but a new day now with Austin Armstrong. Um, got one more group of uh, players to go through. I think I just took Chris's thunder. So, Chris, uh, this this is this is your position. Go for it. No worries. Well, I mean, outside of linebacker, another position group, DBU. I think we loved the moniker of that at University of Florida. Haven't played like DBU the last four years, as as Neil kind of highlighted. What do we think of this group? I think there definitely is an infusion of talent with a guy like Jakeem Jackson, who just got freshman All-American praise by on three this week. Yeah. Uh, we also have some good returners. Jason Marshall, who could be having a money year this year where you potentially go to the NFL. What do we think of the uh, of this room, the cornerbacks and safeties? Um, So I think that there is a lot of talent here. I'm excited and interested to see how it plays out. I've heard a lot of really good things about Jordan Castell. I've actually even heard that like expect it at some point this season, him to become a starter because he, he has really shown out really well. I think Kamari Wilson is somebody that, um, I think at the beginning people were expecting to kind of get past and I, uh, and I think he's held his own and maybe surprised some on the coaching staff, even from that aspect. Um, Kimber is another person that I'm expecting some decent things out of Jason Marshall. You're right though. It is a money year. He is, I mean, I guess if we're going to talk about veteran leadership on in this position group, which is hard because there's so many young and fresh faces here, but he would be one of them. He should have an opportunity to kind of really show out. Um, there's uh, Mitchell Moten. There's, there's, there is talent here. There is speed here. There's just also a lot of inexperience here. And Florida's DBs weren't great last year. So I'm interested to see, though, now that there is kind of more unity within the room, it's a DB's room, it's not a safety's room and a quarterback's room, what that what that does, how that, how that helps their continuity. Because you've got to think, when you have two different coaches – coaching cornerbacks and safeties, it's very easy for the message to get muddled. It's easy for cornerbacks to say like, oh, well, that mess up on that play was on the safeties and their coach may agree with them. And then there has to be kind of a meeting of the minds between a cornerbacks coach and a safeties coach to determine, okay, who's, whose fault was it? That's not a situation Florida is going to have this year. They're going to have that answer right, right off the bat. Um, so I think that there will be some improvement and there needs to be improvement. Florida got beat deep 
a lot. Florida couldn't wrap up. It felt like we were, you know, always five yards behind where we need, we needed to be. And, and we played scared at defensive back. So uh, there, there needs to be massive improvement there. Yeah. Nothing's more frustrating when you get a team in third and long and then give up a third and 15 over and over and over again. And it's coverage bus repeat for the last four years. You know, we joke about third and Grantham, but then we also had it last year too. And it's like, Oh good. So it's actually just third in Florida. Um, It's not even necessarily like that's got to change. We have got to Florida will do its job for the first two downs. And then it didn't matter in third down on a way too regular basis. And and third and whatever distance. It wasn't just uh-huh. that it was always third and three or four. Missouri has a third and 15, a third and 18, and a third and 26 in the same and, quarter. Yeah, and they get 29 yards instead. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it was insanity. I'm sure you were just as frustrated as I was to, to watch it last year. And it felt like we didn't adjust as quickly as maybe we needed to. And it's obviously easy to sit here and armchair quarterback what what should be done. But it felt like the adjustments were slow last year. And so and we don't know if that's on the coaching staff, if that's on the roster. It's but I'm looking for improvement from that this year. Absolutely. Well, another group that we're hoping to see some improvement from is probably uh, what Billy Napier dubs as the game changer team or better known as special teams. Yeah. Obviously, for those that don't know, Allie's husband was an All-American punter at the University of Florida, Eric Wilbur. So punter obviously is a position that you hold near and near to your heart. But outside of punter, what are other I mean, you can talk about punter, but kicker, the return game. What do you so- think of that? Uh, Ricky Pearsall is returning punts. I kind of don't love this. I love it and I don't love it, if that makes sense. I think that Ricky Pearsall has great hands and he's got good speed and he'll probably do a really great job as our punt returner. It terrifies me to think that there's wide receiver one being used as a punt returner. And and I know, you know, you think back to the Urban Meyer days, like he would put his best players on special teams. And I get the theory behind that. I also think those teams were deep enough to allow you to have your best players on special teams and it be okay. And I don't know that we're quite deep enough for that to be the case, but here we are. This is what we're doing. We've got Trevor Etienne probably returning kicks. Andy Jean will probably see time there as well. Um, I think Trey Wilson will get some probably, you know, punt return uh, practice there. I'd kind of love for it to be Trey Wilson and, and maybe not be Ricky Pearsall. That would maybe make me feel better, but Florida overall special teams has to improve. And I think that when, You think about all of the successful teams that Florida had. They always had great special teams. There's a possibility that people watch this documentary that's out on Netflix right now and then remember those special teams and get real pissed this season if it's not a focus. But it's just, it's a no-brainer to me to get the special teams wins. Almost no teams choose to focus on it, but the ones that do have great success. Like Urban Meyer used to have a quote that said, block a punt, win the game. And the stat was something insane. Like 93% of the time, if you block a kick in a game, you win that game. I mean, the, the stats are absolutely insane. So I hope that that's a little bit more of a focus. And I kind of understand why it wasn't last year because the offense and the defense were both so atrocious that if you've got to put focus in somewhere, it's probably going to be there as opposed to special teams. But it's a, a key component. And I think had Florida been better on special teams last year, they probably pick up another win. Um, so I, I hope that that is a major area of improvement for the Gators. People Agreed. forget how can... terrible it was in November alone. 
They lost that Vanderbilt game. They were terrible in the win against South Carolina. We win the game by 32 points, and you have a field goal blocked. You muff the, the snap on another field goal. You fumble a punt, and you give up a fake punt touchdown in a game you win by 32. I think if Florida loses that game, there's a lot more attention on it than there, you know, than there already was. I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, that, that thankfully the team was good enough in other aspects that it didn't matter. But in most of the time you make the amount of special teams mistakes that you make in that game, you lose for sure. Um, and, and the missed field goals have to stop. I think Mahalik is who they've said is going to um, handle field goals and Trey Smack will do kickoffs, which like, that's fine. But there's, I, I hope they had somebody out there working with them. I hope that they're working with with the holder. I know like when, when Chris Tetlin had his streak of missing field goals in the 2006 season, they eventually figured out that it was the hold and that was what was causing, uh, you know, some of the issues. And so it may not necessarily be on the field goal kicker, but I did see a lot of really low kicks last year, which, you know, constantly gives me a heart attack, but I would sit and watch these games with Eric. And I'm telling you, they would line up. The ball would never be not even be snapped. And he'd be like, that's going to be wide left or that's going to be wide, right. Or, and he was right every single time because there was something they were doing repetitively wrong. And those are the kind of things where you, as the coaching staff has to be able to notice it on film and make those changes. Yeah. We'll have to see. I think that it's an X factor. I mean, the special teams is an X factor in a game. If you can flip a field and you could set your team up with good field position, it makes a huge difference, especially when you have an offense that may not be as explosive as it was last year. But if you're going to call them something like game changers, you've got to put the time and energy into actually making them positive game changers. Right. Not losing the game game changer. I I thought that was, yeah. I mean, and it has to make a difference on a consistent basis too. It can't be one of those things where, yes, sometimes it'll help you, but other times it hurts you. And other times it doesn't make a difference. Like Mahalik has to be, or Florida has to have a kicker that can hit those 45, 50, even 55 yard field goals. Cause that's what the university of Florida expects. I mean, we've had Evan McPherson. We've had Caleb Sturgis. We've had Eddie Pinero. We had Judd Davis back in the day. Like Florida is a school that turns out big time kickers. Like that's just part of who we are and we have to get back to that. And we're recruiting at such a high level that there is zero reason why we can't go out and pick the guy that we want. You know, there are good high school kids coming out. There are good. There are guys that come in the portal. If we don't have what we need here, then we need to look elsewhere. Trey Smack, I want to say was the number one kicker coming out of high school two years ago. He was somewhere, you know, very high. Uh, clearly he hasn't won the job. I'm pretty sure Mahalik was a walk-on that um, I'd have to do more research, but I'm pretty sure he was a walk-on that won that job. Um, do you know? Yeah, he, w- yeah, he was a walk-on. He's from Tampa. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think he, he proved himself early on. Yeah. He had a couple of big kicks in the spring. Clearly he's got a handle on the job. And I, I don't think I, it's, it's interesting how they're doing smack for kickoffs and then Mahalik for field goals. I mean, yeah. it, it Smack has probably the better leg and distance, but Mahalik is consistently being a more accurate. That's the only thing I could think of. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen that happen. Like I I think about um, Matt Petrovich while Eric punted. I mean, there, there, there are, that definitely happens um, sometimes, but I just, I, consistency is the key. You said it, that's exactly what it needs to be. Florida needs consistency. Um, Field goal kicking is the kind of, it's a head case sport, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's an individual sport within a team sport and it's very mental. And if you've got to have a coaching staff that understands not just special teams, but actually how kickers work because they're wired totally differently than pretty much anybody else on the field. 
Dang, Ali dropping a blast from the past, Matt Petrovich. That guy would go down and run and tackle the returner. He was not afraid of contact for being no. a kicker. No, he actually loved contact. That yeah. was uh, he he looked for contact. <laughs> yep. Well, okay, so we've done all of the position groups. I think it's safe to say that we've obviously got to see a big improvement from defense, and that may be, as Neil mentioned, one of his X factors for success this season. But we need to see an obviously improvement in special teams if we're to win games. So let's get into the schedule. We'll go through all the games. Allie, we're going to open the floor to you. Give us game by game your prediction uh, and a percentage chance that you think Florida has to win each game. So we'll start with Utah. Okay, so I think Florida has, I'm going to say a 70% chance to win the Utah game. I am fairly confident that Florida heads out there and takes care of business. I, um, looking, so I was in the game in the swamp last year. The size difference between Florida and Utah was very noticeable but I think it'll be even bigger of a difference this year. Florida has gotten larger on both offensive and defensive line, and we already dominated there size-wise last year. Um, I think obviously Cam Rising is going to be a game-time decision. I expect that he does actually play, um, I think. I don't that doesn't mean that he's a hundred percent. I can't imagine that they fully take the training wheels off. I don't know that I think it's incredibly smart to play him if you're not going to take the training wheels off. Um, but I think that Florida can go out there and win. Now, if they do, I think that really sets up the tone for the first half of the season. If they lose, I think it could potentially go very differently um, into the beginning of the season. But I, I actually think that Florida does beat Utah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just imagining a scenario where Florida beats Utah. They obviously steamroll McNeese and you roll into that primetime game. First Tennessee, 2-0, and the swamp is going to be electric. And when you look at the top 10, I want to say Tennessee's sitting at like 12 right now. And you look at the top 10, you know at least Florida State and LSU play each other. Like there's a couple of big matchups between the, the, the first two weeks. There's a great possibility Tennessee's in the top 10 by the time you actually play. So this is a 7 o'clock game in the swamp after Florida will have beaten Utah, who nobody nationally is going to think that Florida has the ability to beat. Obviously, Vegas at the moment still doesn't think Florida has the ability to beat. That is going to be probably the craziest night of the year in the stadium, unless Florida has a way better than expected season. And then it becomes the Florida state game at the end of the year, that stadium will be insane. It'll be electric. It'll be before any heartbreak, you know, happens, which inevitably will at some point in the season. Um, And Florida kicks Tennessee's ass in Gainesville on a pretty regular basis. So if Florida beats Utah, I think Florida beats Tennessee. Also got to point out with, with Florida, Utah, you just mentioned Vegas. That line is plummeting. Mm-hmm. Started at, I think it was eight and it shrunk ten in and a half. half. Started at 10 and a half. half. 10 and a half. Okay. So it, it has more than shrunk it in half. Five four. right now. It's four. Is it four now? Okay. It, I was oh, wow. earlier and it was at it's, five. It is, it is just absolutely dropping like a rock. And that, again, I think what you mentioned, the size difference between Florida and Utah, the question about Cam Rising, that's a game that I happen to agree with you. If Florida goes and wins that, especially on the road, they pull that off, and it could set the tone for quite a quite a nice first half of the season for sure. 
So we're going to go game by game through the rest of the season. But before we do that, want to remind y'all that we are proudly partnered with the Gator Good Foundation, the nonprofit organization that works to bring underprivileged Gator fans to their first ever Florida Gator football game in the swamp, which this year will be against the Arkansas Razorbacks. Just debuted those black jerseys on social media. It will be Military Appreciation Day. That is the reason for the black jerseys. We are saluting those who serve. And as such, the Gator Good Foundation is looking for a current military member, a military veteran, or someone else who is otherwise connected to the military to bring to this year's game. If you believe that you or someone you know is worthy of the honor, please email us at GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. It is an all-expenses-paid trip to the swamp to see the Florida Gators. Please remember we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we would love to bring everyone. We would truly love to bring everyone who is connected to the military who applies, but we are looking specifically for someone who is unable to make the trip work on their own means. So, Please keep that in mind when you apply. Um, We look forward to reading your stories and we hope to choose someone very soon. Again, it is GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. So game two of the season with our our very, very fond partner, Gator Good Foundation, taking care of Arkansas. We'll get to in a little bit, but game two, McNeese, Florida. Um, Can't ever say that Florida is 100% after Georgia Southern. So... Allie, with that in mind, I'm assuming you're not going to go a great deal lower than that, but where do you put that game for Florida? Is there any chance the unthinkable happens? I don't think so. I mean, I think that so, you know, we never want to, they play the games on Saturdays for a reason. So I would say 99%, but this is a good opportunity to try some different things, you know, try some different sets, get some younger guys on the field, give um, an opportunity to, uh, you know, be a little bit more I, I don't know, give, take some chances, right? I don't think that you open the playbook or anything like that, but I think um, it's a good opportunity to see what you've got. You've got the third and fourth quarter. Hopefully the game is well taken care of after, you know, the first quarter and you can let some, some younger guys get some real game experience. It'd be cool to see maybe Max Brown, like sling it, you know, mm-hmm. the second half, you know, get those freshman receivers really, you know, warmed up before they potentially could play a big conference game, which we'll cover here in a second with Tennessee. I think there's, like you said, there's a lot of opportunity. People overlook those games mm-hmm. because they think they're foregone conclusions, which they should be. But getting those freshmen where we have a team full of them to that experience is huge in these opportunities. I mean, this whole team is unproven for the most part. There's so many guys who right now we're just living on potential, right? And so to give them the opportunity to get the, the the jersey dirty against an opponent that can give them some confidence is huge. Yep. Well, speaking of potential, Tennessee, as we talked about just a second ago, has the potential to be the biggest game of the season in the Swamp. Ali, I think I know you're probably leaning on this one, but we're, what do you think of, of the matchup and percent chance Florida has to win? I think Florida wins. I would say I'm I'm a little bit less confident about this game than Utah, so maybe I'll say 60%, 65%, something like this. But I think Florida can win. I think that until Tennessee can prove to me consistently that they can take care of business against the Gators, Florida's in their head as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I just can't, there's not going to be a scenario, at least in my mind, where the swamp is more electric this upcoming season than that night. Um, and I, I think that the crowd carries a huge, 
um, momentum in the, in, in this game. And I think Gator fans are going to be happy. I think that Florida can take care of business against Tennessee. And for those of you counting at home, you know, when you think about what Florida's record is going to be at the end of the day, I think that the five games that people put on their radar as like the games that Florida maybe shouldn't win Utah and Tennessee are two of those games. So if Florida starts the season three and oh, that means they've already taken care of business two different times where the naysayers say they shouldn't. All right. Well, right there, you mentioned something I've, I've got to follow up on right there. You talk about the swamp being electric. It's going to be a game where you think Florida's in the opponent's head. I want to go back specifically for one second to the Utah game last year, Cam rising throws the game losing interception. Do you see a direct cause and effect relationship between the crowd being rowdy and him deciding to throw that ball to, I think it was Dalton Kincaid who was sitting down, but to, to his decision to throw that ball where it was or the location that was on that ball that Amari Burnham was able to jump in and pick it off. Do you see a direct cause and effect relationship between the crowd's noise and that play uh-huh. and others like it? And 50%. Utah had never experienced what they experienced last year. I think they thought like we've played in the Rose bowl. We've played in give big games before they had never played in the swamp. And we did get in cam rising's head. And that was the difference right there. The swamp does have the ability when it's at its best to actually be a game changer. And it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I mean, I think last year it's kind of nice. We had that moment because Mm -hmm. We needed Obviously. it the rest of the season. We, well, yeah. I was going to say nothing else went game. right. <laughs> no, but it was good for our players to feel that, right? It's good for them to know that like, hey, when you when you need us, the fans are here. We've, we will have your back here. I think it was good for Napier to experience what um, a true night game, but a true like uh, where Florida has the ability to be a momentum changer and what Florida football feels like when it's good. Mm-hmm. And it was good that night. Well, that's so that's what he can build toward and, and strive for. Um, and, and he will have another chance to win a night game in the swamp. The following week, granted, Charlotte is not a big time opponent, but it is another game. The Florida Gators will be playing in the swamp and we cannot knock these types of opponents. Cause again, look back to last year, South Florida, we need them to mess up a routine hold and a field goal to avoid overtime with them. And they go one and 11 last year. So we're not going to just miss the possibility. All the lies I could about how USF was going to potentially win their conference because of how good they were. Yeah, that was, was, I mean, that was miserable. Um, We should never have been that close. The talent gap between these two programs is like a high school program playing a college program. Yet there we were. Right. So do you think, and I know there's some similarities. I think Charlotte has a running quarterback. They do wear green. It is going to be a night game. There are some of the similarities here and there, but do you think the unthinkable happens? No, I don't. I think, I think that that's going to be the thing that we see about this Billy Napier team. I don't know that on paper, the record's going to look too terribly different this upcoming season than it did last year. But I do think what's going to look different to Florida fans is the taking care of the games that you should. I think that. Billy Napier and company will do a better job taking care of the McNeese's, the Charlotte's, the team, the Vanderbilt's, the teams that you really absolutely, there should be zero question. You are getting this win. 
Well, speaking of taking care of teams we should, in which we did 31 straight times before 2018, next up, the Kentucky Wildcats, who have beat us three of the last five years. What do you think of this matchup in Lexington, which is shaping up to be, I think, a must-win game for Billy Napier? I think that there's a decent chance Florida loses this game. Um, I think that Florida and Kentucky are closer talent-wise than people maybe would like to admit. I think it's difficult to play in Lexington at night, particularly recently for Florida. I think that Kentucky is in Florida's head a little bit. These players don't know Kentucky as the Kentucky team that we know them as. They know them as the team that routinely beats them. Um, I think that it is going to be a tough matchup. This is a coin flip game for me. Um, and, And Kentucky has had Florida's number more often than not recently. So coin flip 50% where, yeah, where do you, okay. Percent. I think, I think it is a 50%. It's a coin flip game. I think that there, when I looked at my predictions for the overall season, I think I wrote this down as a loss because I do think that Florida probably loses a coin flip or two that they shouldn't. And I think they beat some teams that they shouldn't. And Kentucky is one of those ones that I think that they could end up on the wrong side of. Alrighty. So right now you're looking at maybe a four and one start for the Gators. If we lose that coin flip game next up though, we have homecoming mm-hmm. Vanderbilt, a team that we should have beat last year. We didn't, as Neil mentioned, we special teams got the best of us in that game. What do you think about this one in a revenge spot for homecoming? I think that Florida beats Vanderbilt. I think that if Billy Napier is as self-reflective as I, I believe that he is, I think this is a game he puts emphasis on Florida shouldn't lose to Vanderbilt. That is not the, the rosters aren't the same. The programs aren't the same. The history is not the same. There is no reason for Florida to lose to Vanderbilt. And I think that Billy Napier knows that that one stings more than most from last year. And so I do think, and and it's homecoming. I think that Florida does what they need to do against Vanderbilt. Yeah. I mean, I see a scenario last year, if we win that game, like we should have in Nashville, we're seven and four, we go into that game in Tallahassee, you're looking at a potential eight win season, which Gator fans would have taken in a heartbeat in the a first year. Percent. A million percent. So next game though, South Carolina, another, I think potential coin flip game. Neil and I think this is the trap game for mm-hmm. Florida. If we look at a road game, we were a little bit higher on us first Kentucky, but South Carolina, we think is a trap game. What do you think about the spot uh, coming off of a homecoming win against Vanderbilt now, maybe five and one, Where do you think we land with this one? So this is another hard one. South Carolina was an enigma for me last year. You know, we beat them 38-7, I believe is what it was. And then they go out and beat the pants off of a Tennessee team that was incredibly talented and poised to make the playoffs. And so that was such a weird, like, two-week span to watch because, like, are we good? Are they good? Are we like, I I had no idea what to think about that. I do think South Carolina is a program on the rise. I think that Columbia is overall a difficult place to be. That game will probably be at night. I think that Beamer would love nothing more than to get that win. Florida gets the best of everybody, which is also another factor in this. I don't know that I think Florida gives their best against everybody, which hopefully is something that will change, but we a hundred percent get everybody's best shot every single week. South Carolina, it makes their season if they can beat Florida. It, if they can beat Florida, it doesn't even matter what happens most weeks for them because they're going to spend spend the whole year campaigning on the fact that they beat the Gators. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it could be a trap game, but I I actually think Florida takes care of business in this one, but it is it is a coin flip game as well. 
I would love to be as optimistic about this game as you are. Frankly, I mean, because I know that they're going to be preaching everything that you hear on day one that you sign up for peewee ball, protect the football. Hey, we fumbled three straight possessions last year. Maybe let's protect the football and not turn it over like that. Spencer Rattler, you didn't look comfortable last year. Maybe let's go through a little bit more study sessions this year. against Florida. They're, they're going to make sure that, that they give Florida their very best, like you just said, but not even because we're Florida, because they need this game. Because if you look at their schedule, there is a road game at Georgia. There is a road game at Tennessee. North Carolina to start the year could be a loss. They yeah. could be reeling and desperate coming into this game, needing a win against us to save their season because there's still a game with Clemson later in the year. So they might be needing this just to make a bowl game Yeah, for yeah. As, as strong as they think about themselves. Uh, you know, absolutely. And this, it's, it's Columbia is a tough place to play. It's potentially cold. Um, there, there's a lot of factors that'll come to play here. And again, I do, I think this is a coin flip. I, if you can go one and one against Kentucky and South Carolina, that's an improvement, I guess. Well, I mean, maybe not because they went one and one against them last year. Um, but this South Carolina team is going to be even improved from the one we played last year who ended up being pretty darn good. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's a tough game for sure. Well, and I mean, look, if we're, like you said, one and one between Kentucky and South Carolina, but we're going into the bye week versus Georgia with a six and one record, we'll take it. That That Absolutely. is huge. 100%. And, and a six and one record, that sets up a, a showdown in Jacksonville. I think the last couple of times, uh, or at least early in the Dan Mullen tenure, we rolled into that game with one loss and it was a top 10 matchup. So six and one, maybe that would be the case again. I think we're expecting Georgia as they are preseason ranked number one. I'm not mm-hmm. high on them. I don't think they're going to win three Pete a national championship, but they're certainly going to be a team that will be poised to potentially win it again. Yeah. What do we think of this matchup? Is it closer than it has been in the last two years? So, you know, I think um, about this game, I think maybe a little bit differently than most people do. I think, you know, Two years ago, Dan Mullins last year, Florida absolutely could have beaten that Georgia team. And even with the wheels falling off, uh, you know, the way that they were, I still think they could have. I don't think that game was that that massive of a gap. And then last year, Florida was in that game for two and a half quarters. And I think, you know, the score at the end of the day didn't really feel like what it felt like to me. I don't know that Florida ever... I don't know that it ever felt like Florida was going to take the lead, but it very much felt like Florida was in it in, until they weren't essentially, they were in it until our two deep got tired. Then at that point, Georgia's depth is what won that, that game. So I don't know that I prescribe to this idea that there's just this massive gap between the two programs, because I don't know that it's that, that big. And it's two years. We won the year before that. Like, I feel like Georgia talks about it. Like, you know, nobody even remembers back when Florida used to win kind of thing like this. We Florida has dominated Georgia for the better part of the last 30 years. That just hasn't the last two. Um, I, I don't think Florida wins this game, but I think that Florida shows that the gap is not as big as the national media would allow you to believe. And I think that Florida gets Florida gets another year or two under their belt with Napier's recruits. And this goes back to being either a coin flip game or a Florida becomes dominant again. I, I just, I don't think that we're as far away from the Georgia program as I think most would tell you we are. 
Well, certainly one can hope that. And come, let's say we do lose this game, though. We move into that Arkansas game. This has been a letdown spot in recent years. Like, I think back in 2018, we laid an egg to Missouri, a Missouri team. We definitely were better than that year. What happens this year? Rolling into an Arkansas game where I think it's probably another toss-up game, potentially. Arkansas does return Jefferson at quarterback. What do you think about this matchup? So I have Florida winning this game, but I think this is going to be one of those like bellwether moments for Billy Napier because more than likely they're coming off this loss to Georgia. So he is going to be in a position where, okay, can you convince your players that the rest of the season is entirely worth playing for? You're not going to play in an SEC championship game. You're not going to play in the playoffs, but the rest of the season is absolutely worth fighting for. And I think that we will see that from him because we saw that from his team last year, Florida had nothing to play for the second half of the season truly, but they showed up every single day. It didn't mean that they were necessarily more talented. It obviously didn't result into a win every single week, but I don't think we ever watched this Florida team take the field and ever feel like they're not even trying. I, and we did we did feel that at the end with the Dan Mullen tenure. We did feel that sometimes with McElwain. We even felt that sometimes with Muschamp's teams. I never got the feeling last year that Billy Napier's team ever gave up at all. And that's something that stems directly from the person that's leading your program. So I have faith in the fact that Napier will be able to galvanize because I do think it's coming off a loss. But bellwether moment. For sure. Bellwether moment, culture defining moment for the program to show how far it's come. And as Neil has been ta- teasing and talking about in his article where we came from during Dan Mullen era and now into the Billy Napier area. So that I agree. That's a big game. And obviously, you know, we got to make those uh, all black uniforms count for that game. Uh, then, or, or we're going to have to burn them. So I, I know people want to see these a lot. So we need a win in them. I'll right. also point out that the Gator Good Foundation is 4-0 all time at bringing oh, candidates to game. We've beaten South Carolina in 18, that comeback game. We were down 31-14. That was our first one. We won that. We blew out Vanderbilt the next year, 56-0. 2021, we blasted Tennessee, despite the rest of the year indicating that we probably should not have. And last year... We beat Missouri 24-17. So we're, we're putting that on the line. Gator Good Foundation has never lost a game um, that we have brought our candidate to. So hopefully that continues. It, it, it better because we're, I mean, black uniforms, military appreciation. There's, uh, there's, there's too much voting on this. Thankful for and play hard for on that game. Absolutely. Well, moving to after Arkansas. Hopefully coming off a big win and Gator Good will be 5-0 and at that point. We go to LSU. And this is one of the latest times we would have played LSU in the schedule outside of the 2016 reschedule and then the 2020 uh, shoe throw game that got rescheduled to December during the whole COVID pandemic. What do we think of this game? LSU is getting a lot of love by the media. Many even believe they may be the best team in the SEC West, if not the entire conference. So, you know, I think the LSU is interesting. Like, so last year, you know, they have a new coach in Brian Kelly, but if you look at what LSU did recruiting wise in the four years leading up to Brian Kelly's first season, they averaged a a number three rated class. So the amount of talent, even though obviously they let go of Ed Orgeron and they, they felt like, you know, they didn't have it moving in the right direction. 
he left the cupboard completely full that that team there was no rebuild that needed to happen there was almost like a redirection that needed to happen they needed somebody to just kind of reorganize all of the treasure trove that they already had so it's different than the type of rebuild that we had to do here at florida so it's not surprising to me that they were able to win you know right away um and and perform well because they had the talent to do so. I think we'll continue to see that this year. I'm interested to see. I think we'll find out what kind of coach Brian Kelly is as this goes on further. He's not used to having to get up for a game week in and week out. That's not, that wasn't the reality at Notre Dame. That's not the, that wasn't the reality at Cincinnati. I mean, you, the SEC is just built different. Every single week is your your Super Bowl. Um, but I think the LSU beats Florida. I think that they are the more talented team. The game is in, in Baton Rouge. More than likely, they'll give us a night game, which I hope they do. That's just the best absolute environment uh, for a night game in college football, in my opinion. And I think Florida loses. But I think as long as they are in it, as long as they continue to fight, like there's growth that can be had in a loss. I agree. Yeah. And and I think the biggest thing is, how does it look? If we lose a game, how does it look? Is it competitive? Does the team fight? Do they not give up? Do they continue to march on? That yeah. really will be could be the defining moment and the turning point for the program as you go from year two to year three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but moving on, another, I think, maybe another defining moment for this program. How do they react going up to Columbia, Missouri? This is, as you talked about, a team that has unfortunately given Florida wits in the last decade since they've joined the SEC. This will be a late November game. It'll be cold, could be rainy, could be even a night game. What do we think about this Missouri team who is starting to get some buzz too in the SEC East? So um, historically, when we go to Missouri, it is the end of November. It's freaking freezing. It is so flat there and so windy. It affects so many things. I can remember Tommy Townsend calling Eric from the locker room and being like, dude, it's 30 miles an hour winds. Like, what, what do I even do? Um, just being completely freaked out by the the weather that you experience there. We historically get put at that 11 a.m. spot, um, 11 a.m. Central Time. I think Florida plays terribly in those early games. Uh, I don't know what it is because it almost doesn't matter who the players are. Florida just plays terrible at that time of day. Um, fans aren't into it yet. Players are only half awake. Um, it's it's early. Um I think Florida can win this, but I also think this is another one of those tests. It's, I don't want to say it's a coin flip game because I think Florida should and can take care of business, but they are going to have to be incredibly focused. This is a possibility to be, you know, if, if you go to Baton Rouge and you lose, it's going to take something special for Billy Napier to redirect and focus and get them fired up for a game that is not fun to get fired up for. It's not fun to play in the freezing wind. It's not fun to play at 11 o'clock in the morning. Nobody cares about Missouri. So it's hard to like use that as a motivating factor. They don't see them as a rival. They don't see them. So there is going to be some mental gymnastics that has to go on from this coaching staff to make sure that this team shows up, but I expect that they do. And I think that they win. One right. piece of feedback I've gotten from Alex Brown about this is when it's when it's cold like that, that ball turns into a rock, yes. mm-hmm. and it it completely changed. I mean, you're talking about Graham Merch being a game manager, though. That might actually work to Florida's advantage, even if they're not used to the cold weather. Yep. 
they can run the ball down Missouri's throat. So I'm actually higher on this on Florida's percent chance to win this game than I think most Gator fans I've ever I've seen with their like win percentage projections. And Chris will tell you, like, he's the optimistic one of us too. Like <laughs> I'm I'm the Debbie Downer of this show. And I have a very strong feeling that Florida pulls this out, although you know it very well could be one of the one of the very few times in Gator history that they play a game in the snow. It's not unreasonable to think that in, in November in the middle of Missouri, but I'm just th- this is one where like I, I'm the one that's super down on South Carolina. I don't think much of our chances against Georgia or or Utah, but I'm rubbing my crystal ball on this one. I think Florida's got this one. Well, I mean, I th- I kind of lump this into the category of Missouri, Kentucky, South Carolina. How do yes. we fare in those games? If and we Vandy. can go and Van- well in Vandy, but let's let's take those three. Mm-hmm. If you can go two and one versus those teams, oh. you're looking, I think, at that point at a seven eight win season. Yeah. depending on how the ball rolls with those other teams. And I think seven and eight wins are something that Florida can hang their hat on. That's growth. That's, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. I think that if, when you look at the real internal structural changes that Napier has made and couple that with actual record progress too, I, you know, I, I'm comfortable with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if my calculations are correct, you've got us about an eight and three record right now heading into that showdown versus the most overrated team in all of college football, which is Florida State. What Y'all are your are thoughts? Talk me into a nine and three season. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You're going to pick us to beat the national champions. I mean, this is my thing. They needed help from the refs to beat Florida last year in Tallahassee. Um, and I think Florida is going to be a step better this year. I don't know that I think Florida State has is going to be that much improved. I think that they lost some talent last year. I mean, I, I don't know. They had the Heisman trophy winner and they'll be playing for a national title. So uh, little old Florida probably has no chance, but I would love the opportunity to play spoiler for them. I, I personally think they've already dropped games by the time we get to this point. So we were not even going to have the opportunity to play spoiler, but I would love to ruin their season. That would be so fun. It's in the swamp. I've already had so many Florida state fans tell me like, you realize there's going to be more Seminoles in the swamp than Gators that day. And like, no, that's not. Do you think all of us are selling our season tickets to Florida? State? News. Like, <laughs> it's never going to, that's not going to happen. No. Um, but I would love the, the, you talk to Florida state fans. They think that there is a mile between the two programs right now, which is incredibly laughable. Um, Look at the recruiting. The, the recruiting does not back that up, even if we've been no. down in recruiting. We've been beating them on the recruiting trail after we had a losing season and they had their best season since 2016. That should tell you something. Oh, but the portal. It, it's it's look, it the portal is great for filling a need here or there, oh, for slapping a band on. Like when we had John Grenard in 2019. Yes, great. It works if you if you have everything else around you and you find a generational quarterback, like a I mean it wasn't the portal then, but Cam Newton or a Joe Burrow or a Hendon Hooker, fine. One piece. It doesn't work to fill an entire roster like that. So, all right. One question before we move on, though, to our, our last piece of this. How has how uh, our, our good friend TJ reacted when you've uh, informed him of all these uh, revelations? I know you do a podcast with him. It is uh, like he's, you know, he's my favorite person to argue about at, with because he's just so easy to, uh, you know, poke. It's 
it's incredibly fun, but you know, he thinks Florida state has a chance to make the playoffs this year. He thinks that the mile is massive between the two programs. He thinks Florida's recruiting class doesn't hold. And so at the end of the year, we're not sitting where we're sitting. I don't think any of those things are true. I think Florida, I I'm honestly going to be surprised if Florida loses anyone from this class. And if they do, maybe it's one player or, you know, uh, I just, I don't picture that happening at all. I think that Florida will be very much in it for, with Florida state. I think it's a coin flip game. I would love for Florida. I mean, Florida could lose another coin flip game earlier in the year. If you can tell me that we're going to get Florida state as that coin flip game. Um, I just, the gap is there's no gap. And if there is a gap, it's honestly still us with better talent than, than them. I think, I think they had a nice 10 win season, a a nice season. I think that they needed some luck a couple of times. I think that they, I think had they played LSU later in the season, they would not have a 10 win uh, record last year, but Florida state fans, I I mean, they play in the ACC. They play in the ACC and that's, and that's right. And they're going to stay there for a couple of years because something that their fans have been mysteriously quiet about, but that deadline for them to get out of the league next year, Came and went, radio silence from them. And I think that they overestimate the value that they would bring to this conference. Like, I, I, you know, Florida State is a national brand. It absolutely is a national brand. The market for the state of Florida, though, we got you covered. You know, we're, we, I don't know that they bring anything to the table like they think that they do. Now, if, if everybody's going to expand and the SEC is like, listen, look, we've got to get to 20 teams or we've got to get to 24 or whatever else. I can see where the argument that Florida State makes sense geographically. I can see, okay, well, if we only have the ACC brands to pick from, like, I guess Florida State's the the best of the worst or, you know, whatever. Um, But I don't see this like, oh, we're going to expand because Florida State wants to join us. Like that doesn't exist from the SEC. That's only in Florida State's head. Where a lot of things exist. Yes. A lot of space in there. (laughs) A lot of empty space in there. Well, the games are played for a reason, so we'll have to see how it all turns out. But I do agree. I think we're all in agreement here that uh, we'll probably see our friends up in Tallahassee not uh, get their expectations. Hopefully not. But it's all fun and games. It's good banter. It's what makes our rivalries fun. And hopefully we win our rivalry games this year because last year we were an offer, which was highly disappointing. Yeah. Unacceptable. It is. It's unacceptable. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, Billy Napier is going to be judged by the wins and losses. And I think that he has all of the intangibles moving in the right direction. And that's great. But the on the field play is going to be what determines whether he's, you know, a Ron Zook who pads our, our, you know, coffers with all of these players and then passes it to the next, or if he's going to be an urban Meyer or Steve Spurrier who can bring them in and win with them. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly how I see it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a great conversation. Allie definitely uh, loved your insight. I, I wanted, I wanted to, run my quick synopsis by you because it I think we're pretty much in lockstep here um for this season. And I mean I've written about this, so I don't need to go into it in too great of detail, but just so we're all on the same page and we can compare each other's thoughts on the same podcast and the same platform. Here's how I see it. Florida's got two games that I think are just their losses. Here's me being the pessimist. They're just they're gonna be losses. LSU and Georgia, sorry, I, I'm I'm just not seeing it. 
two cupcakes baked in there. I know I'd say Georgia Southern. I know USF last year. I know, but Florida should easily win these two games against McNeese and Charlotte. So eight games left. You've got four games that you should win. They're not gimmies, but you should beat Arkansas. You should beat Vandy. I think you should beat Tennessee and you should beat FSU because those are your games in the swamp. You've got to show that you can protect your home turf. And that puts you at six and two. And now you've got four games left that I think are the coin flips. I think it's Utah. It's at Kentucky. I, I, I hate saying this because I do think that we beat Missouri, but it's a coin flip just because we don't know what the weather's going to be at Missouri. And that leaves us with um, the one game left at South Carolina. So I think Florida goes two and two in some permutation in those four games. If that's what Florida winds up being, that is seven and five. And that is an improvement from last year. But now my question for you is if that's how it plays out, you beat Tennessee, you beat FSU. So you can check those, you beat your rival boxes off, but you've lost two of those games to Kentucky, Utah, um, Missouri, and South Carolina. Do you think the fan base as a whole is tolerant of the season and, and sees it as one that is truly a step in the right direction? I mean, I think, you know, the Florida fan base just as well as I do. And the answer to that is probably the seat gets pretty warm. If it's seven and five, I I, not rightfully. So in my opinion, I think that patience for me, it is absolutely enough um, to warrant patience. It's, it's a sign of growth, but I think more importantly than even the fan base is the fact that I think that that would be growth for the administration. I think that the UF administration understands what the undertaking was here. They wanted the undertaking. You don't, you don't get rid of a coach that took you to a New Year's Six Bowl three out of four years, unless you want a completely different direction for the inside of your program. That's a gamble, right? And I mean, we can talk ad nauseum about all the things that were potentially wrong behind closed doors. But from the outside, if you go to three out of four New Year's Six Bowls and you make a change from there, you uh, the expectations are high, but you want some sort of complete rebuild. So I think that he gets time from that. But I, I think all of us, it's part of our responsibility here to urge fans to have patience and to see the growth in, in ways that are not just measurable by wins and losses, even though at the end of the day, wins and losses are the most important thing. Well, I'm on record saying that the, the fit that the administration will be very tolerant of him for the reasons you just mentioned. Um, I'm just hopeful that the fans will, will collectively just band together and, and give him a chance. Cause I, I think you're right. I think he is in here for a few years and I just, Hope the fans don't run off. Helps. You know, fans love recruiting. Florida is kicking ass. And if you see what they're doing coming off a six win season, what is he going to be able to pull off coming off a 10 win season or even, you know, an eight or nine win season? And we want to see the opportunity to, to see that you've got he's planting the seeds. We've got to give him time to to let the crop grow. Absolutely. Well, Allie. Thank you so much for all of your time and your insights tonight. It's been a fantastic show. Uh, couldn't be more thankful for for that. And let the fans know where they can find you. I know you've been putting out a lot of great content out on YouTube, also Twitter. So please let the fans know where they can uh, follow you. Sure. On Twitter, you can follow me at Allie, which is A-L-I underscore Peek, P-E-E-K. And then on YouTube, a Peek Inside Gators Football. 
Awesome. And please be sure to follow us on the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast on YouTube. Please, if you enjoy this video, make sure to hit that like button down there and subscribe. We're going to also continue to put out more content. But great conversation tonight, Allie. Thank you so much. And, and hopefully we have a great Gator football season that we can continue to talk about. Yes. Thanks for having me, guys. This was so fun. And, you know, I I, I expect that it's going to be a better year than than the experts think. I think we all agree on that as well. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Go Gators, and we'll see you next time on the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. Go Gators.